Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I'm cutting in early in this episode because we're going to be exploring an amazing piece of seminal architecture, a structure known as the Chicky, spelled C-H-I-C-K-E-E. Normally, I like to do a little bit of a cold open with these episodes, but frankly, the context of these buildings is so important and I wanted to tell you a little bit about it before we get into the episode. To understand how exactly this important piece of seminal culture came to be, you have to understand the origins of the seminal people themselves. That, however, is not a simple story to tell. Many historians have tried, but colonization, native removal, and violence towards native peoples, including here in Florida, have muddied the story. It's with that in mind, to tell the story of the Chicky, that I reached out to two experts who work with the Seminole tribe. Both are not tribal members themselves, but both have extensive knowledge on Seminole history. To understand the Chicky, we have to go back to the beginning. So I called up Dave Scheidecker. My name is Dave Scheidecker. I am the research coordinator for the Seminole Tribe of Florida's Tribal Historic Preservation Office. I'm a historic archaeologist. Dave works at the Seminole Tribe of Florida's Tribal Historic Preservation Office, where he works with historic sites, especially the Tribal Register of Historic Places. And I also am very much a researcher. History questions, anytime somebody has something that they want to know about history, I'm the one who looks it up, tries to make sure everything is verified and correct. He is a busy man, which is why I am grateful he took the time to lay out for me some complex history. We start at the beginning with the origins of the word seminal itself, spelled S-E-M-I-N-O-L-E. The word word seminal, to, to put things the easiest, is not a seminal word. It didn't come from them, it came from the outside. Dave shares how much of a misconception there is about what exactly the name means. He provides an anecdote where he was working in the field last year at a research site. They were working with tools that were found there, and one researcher suggested that the tools were quote-unquote pre-seminal. Another expert there who works with the Seminole tribe retorted, quote, There is no pre-seminal Florida, end quote. For the Seminole, all people of Florida are Seminole ancestors. The term Seminole was a was manufactured by outsiders to describe people in Florida. The origins are kind of crazy. It comes from a Spanish phrase, Cimarron. That's Cimarron, spelled C-I-M-A-R-R-O-N. Which was used to describe runaways. They say that's what it meant. It was actually a borrow word, apparently, from the Tiano people in um, Cuba which meant runaway cattle or runaway domestic animals. The Spanish used it to describe two groups of people. They used it to describe escaped slaves, and they used it to describe the Native Americans who weren't part of the mission system, who didn't join with them. The Native Americans, the term Seminole came from there, came from the Creek adapting the term when they were dealing with the Spanish to describe the ones that weren't affiliated with them in the South, and then the Americans got it from the Creek. The Creek, originally called the Muscogee, as described on their website, quote, were not one tribe, but a union of several, end quote. They lived historically through most of an area called the Southeastern Woodlands, defined as modern-day Southern Tennessee, most of Alabama and Georgia, and some parts of Northern Florida. It was the Creek who adapted the word Cimarron into a version of the word Seminole. 
a lot of tribal members actually resisted it. Ahaya, who is also known as Cowkeeper, one of the earliest recorded leaders of these groups, uh, hated the term. He refused to acknowledge it. Put simply, the Spanish had missions across the state of Florida, religious structures with communities around them. With many of these missions, there were indigenous persons who were affiliated with the missions and sometimes lived in the communities themselves. If there was a group or a town of indigenous peoples unaffiliated with a Spanish mission, they were called Cimarron by the Spanish. Like there's this common knowledge that's passed down, and I learned it in growing up in school, Florida history class, even in college at one point, that the Spanish diseases and Spanish occupation wiped out all the Native Americans of Florida. And that only some of them survived, went to Cuba with the Spanish, some returned and they all died. That's not true. The Spanish took all the ones they could with them when they left, but they only recorded, the reason they said they took all of them was they were only concerned with the ones that were affiliated with them. There were still Native American groups out there that weren't affiliated with the Spanish, didn't join with them. They were ravaged by diseases and slave raids that happened during the time, but there were still survivors. Who were the people that were living in Florida that the Spanish called the Cimarron? Well, the Calusa and the Tequesta are two that are very well known. And there's even arguments about if those are accurate entities that the Spanish recorded, but I won't go into those and choose things even worse. <laughs> <laughs> there were the Ice and Yega, and those were all groups that spoke the same common language as the Calusa from the South. Those are ones that came in to sort of Seminole people later on during during the war for the most part or the, the survivors of them they weren't even really the full tribes anymore by that point a core of the seminole are people who came either from north florida or the areas just north of it in alabama and georgia because it's it's always important to remember that those state boundaries did not exist for these people so there were a good amount of these people who were muskogean speakers and they were, there were Muskogean speakers all through basically the southeast. The Appalachian were a major part of this group. They were in North Florida, the Sokobaga, Utica. One interesting one was the um, Tumukua, and we're not really sure on them. They were some of the most heavily impacted by the Spanish. They spoke their uh, separate language. And I actually don't know if there's any remnants of them within the Seminole. Wow. But pretty much everyone else, when it came to the tribes that survived the Spanish colonization, and then ones that were pushed down, they were joined by people who were pushed down into Florida from Georgia and Alabama by American settlers. And in many cases, the groups that were here or moved here after colonization had set up towns for themselves. Dave tells me some of these towns had populations in the thousands. Some of these towns eventually did business with the Spanish themselves, including providing beef from the cattle they brought with them. So to zoom out a little before we go forward, there's countless groups here before any Spanish explorers set foot in Florida. So some of these original populations lived with the Spanish missions, and those who didn't were called Cimarrons, which eventually became the word Seminole. Which brings us to the Seminole Wars, which was when the word Seminole expanded its usage. It's, it's hard to say exactly how it was adopted because the, some, there were no written records from the Seminole people themselves at the time. Right. So we have to just go by oral, oral histories, what people can tell us. And we know some people really hated the term because it came from the outside. 
And it was it was adopted at first for convenience. And even a lot of the military people in their records understood that they used for multiple groups, but also they needed a blanket term for them. So that that's how it got being used got to be used by the Americans. For the tribe, they just kind of understood that this was the easiest way to deal with the Americans. So it convenience is really the thing and it became I guess so it became commonly used. It became an identity that was this pan-tribal larger group identity for all of them than their own individual ones. So that became kind of a rally to, for them to hold together. And I don't know how much they liked it, how much there was opposition to it, but we just know that by the time we get to the establishment of formal dealings with the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the 1800s, everyone's pretty much using the term. So by... American historians, there were three Seminole Wars. The first begins in 1816 and was primarily a war against General Andrew Jackson's movements into the colonies of East and West Florida. The second Seminole War, and possibly the most famous, begins in 1835 and started when the American government attempted to enforce the Indian Removal Act of 1830, moving all of the groups in Florida to Indian territory in modern-day Oklahoma. The third Seminole War began in 1855 when the last remaining Seminoles were provoked by the U.S. Army. Those are the ones that historians recall as the three Seminole Wars because those are the three times that the American Congress basically declared war. For the tribe, there was one Seminole War. It really started around 1811 with the Patriot War when militia groups with some backing from the U.S. government invaded Florida to try to take it from the Spanish. And it kept going from then. It ended in 1858 with the Third Seminole War when Billy Bullegs and his people were taken from Florida to Oklahoma. And you had two to three hundred survivors that remained in Florida. But during that entire period in between, there was no time where the Seminole weren't being attacked or on guard from attack from American settlers. And for them, it didn't matter if the people they were fighting were backed by Congress, if they were wearing uniforms or whatnot. These were still Americans who were trying to drive them from their land. These wars had a lot to do with something called the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. Treaty of Moultrie Creek was established, this huge reservation area, not letting the Seminole have any borders uh, on the coast because they didn't want them trading with any other nation. The Indian Removal Act comes through. Andrew Jackson, the guy who fought the first Seminole War, is president. Indian Removal Act comes through and basically say, oh, this treaty is no longer valid. You all need to go. And there, I mean, there were arguments over how valid it even was originally and whether they were supposed to leave after 20 years. But the fact is they decided to end the 20 years nine years later. During that war, that's when you see thousands of Seminole either killed or taken to Oklahoma. You come back down to 1855, the third war, that is really the last war of removal east of the Mississippi. At the end of it, Billy Bullies and his people just basically, after so many years of war, decide they're done, and they agree to go. Enter Abiaka, also called Sam Jones, who leads what remains of the Seminoles after Billy Bowlegs is taken to Oklahoma. He sets a path for the Everglades, and they begin their travel south. En route, they encounter the ship that is to take Bowlegs and his people west. Billy Bowlegs and his people were at Fort Myers to get on the ship called the Gray Cloud to be taken away. Two warriors showed up from Sam Jones' party and basically read them the riot act, insulted them, said that they're, they're never leaving, and went back into the Everglades to rejoin Sam Jones' party, which is this handful 
of what was left of the Seminole people in Florida who went deep into the Everglades to basically go into careful hiding to stay in place. And they're the ones who were able to stay, remain, and become the Seminole tribe of Florida. There are no treaties, no negotiations. By the time that the survivors reached the Everglades, the title of the Seminole remained the Unconquered People. It's here, during the wars, that many people believe the Chicky came to be. If you have driven through South Florida, you've likely seen a chicky or two. I was just in Naples and saw chickies or chicky imitators everywhere. It is an extremely important structure in Seminole life, and many historians believed for a very long time that the chickies started being built during the Seminole Wars. My second guest this week is here to help rewrite that narrative. Her name is Carrie Dilly. My name is Carrie Dilly. I'm the Visitor Services and Development Manager for the Atatiki Seminole Museum, um, located on the beautiful Big Cypress Reservation. Um, not to be confused with the Big Cypress Preserve, um, that's a little bit further south. Carrie works for the Atatiki Museum, one of my favorite places in Florida. Its name means literally a place to learn, and that is certainly what Atatiki is all about. So the museum was actually chartered in the late 1980s, but the the physical structure that we see today opened in 1997, and the grand opening of the museum was on the tribe's 40th anniversary of federal recognition. So it's kind of cool because the museum's anniversary falls on the tribe, the Seminole tribe of Florida's anniversary of federal recognition every year. The, the community, obviously, you know, they have such a rich history. Having the museum in Big Cypress, that's really the heart of, of the Seminole tribe. And, you know, a lot of really important things happened in Big Cypress. And that's where the leader, Sam Jones, or Abiaka, that's where he was. And so I think having the museum, even though it's it's a it's a drive from most places. It's really important. And, you know, I think that as we're starting to ensure that the message that we're sending at the museum is really tying into the environment of the Big Cypress and thinking about environmental stewardship and the Seminoles connection past and present to the Everglades. Like it's really critical that, that this is where the museum is located. I visited the museum about two years ago, driving the beauty of the Everglades to reach the reservation, and took a walk through their incredible collection. Not only is it full of narratives and artifacts from Seminole past, they also have whole sections dedicated to what life is like on the reservation as a Seminole today. Out back of the museum, there is a trail that leads to a collection of chickies where artisans make crafts under the Florida sun. Atatiki is closed currently for COVID, but their digital tour takes you through their entire beautiful museum, and their social media accounts frequently share items, photographs, and stories from their museum. As for Carrie, she started working with the tribe in a different position back in 2008 as an architectural historian for the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. Today, Carrie works in fundraising and membership for the museum, as well as starting new education projects with her team. But it's her experience with architecture that brought her to the tribe in the first place. Carrie literally wrote the book on chickies called Thatched Roofs and Open Sides. Can you describe what a chickie is? Sure. So in the most basic terms, a chickie would be an open-sided structure 
which has a thatched roof. So think about all the different types of structures throughout the world. I don't like to use the term hut. Um, Seminoles don't call a chicky hut their their housing. So, you know, we just use the term chicky, but it doesn't have walls. It's made of four upright posts and then this thatched roof made out of palm thatching. If you haven't seen a chicky or you can't visualize it, look it up. The design is remarkable, simple, and effective. They are so prominent that Carrie was asked early on in her work with the tribe to do a survey of all the chickies on Big Cypress. So when I started with the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, the director at that time, he wanted me to conduct a chickie survey. So, you know, looking around the Seminole reservations and even off-reservation in South Florida, and I don't know how prevalent chickies are um, up in Orlando, but throughout South Florida, they're everywhere. And there are lots of imitations. Let me put that out there as well. Not every open-sided thatch roof structure is a chickie. Um, some may just be tiki huts. But he wanted me to conduct a survey because there were so many, particularly on the Big Cypress Reservation. You know, I started this survey and almost every house on the reservation has a chickie um, in the yard. So, you know, just looking around and they're also used, you know, as like these community spaces, you know, in other places at the museum, we have tons, you know, this is where people can dine, they bring their lunch, they can, you know, sit under a chicky and it's, you know, such an amazing place. It's like 10 to 15 degrees cooler under a chicky than just standing outside. And especially in South Florida where the heat is oppressive, like it's just a really comfortable idyllic space that's super significant for Seminole history and modern culture as well. And that's where the historical blurriness kicks into high gear. So to get a little bit into that history, can you tell me how how the Chicky was developed by the Seminoles, uh, sort of when and why that came to prominence? Sure. And, you know, this is kind of a tricky question because if you had asked someone maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the standard answer was kind of, um, oh, the Chicky originated during the Seminole War era. So we're looking at early to mid 1800s because the Seminoles were on the run from U.S. troops and they needed this structure that could be created, you know, with local locally available materials, readily available materials that could be built relatively quickly and then abandoned as needed. The narrative that has been floating around for a long time is that the Chicky came to prominence during the Seminole Wars of the 1800s, when they were able to be built up quickly while on the move, then abandoned when they needed to move on again. But Carrie, in her research, has found that this story is apocryphal, to say the least. So that was kind of like the generic default answer. Some people might say, oh, well, it was, you know, a take on a Creek Summer House or something like that. But the, the consensus really is that this, the Chicky has been a part of Seminole history forever. And, you know, if you look at the Seminole ancestors and, you know, Seminole ancestors were always here in this area in South Florida. So they were building structures similar to the Chicky or just like the Chicky pretty much forever. So especially when you look at the Miccosukee side of the Seminole history, like that's going to be the direction that that goes in. So the Chicky was being used by a lot of Seminole ancestors due to its convenience and versatility, including in the hot swamps of lower Florida. The Chicky has been a part of life in Florida for millennia, long before any American saw a Chicky being built during the Seminole Wars. 
So the chickies are made of these organic materials, things that can fade and deteriorate over time because they're made of plants and wood. Chickies don't really leave behind an archaeological record because they're pretty much a sustainable or organic structure. So once they've outlived their useful life, they just kind of go back into the earth. You didn't really need to dig the these super deep post holes and and things like that. So there isn't a lot of archaeological evidence, or there's really none. There will be in the future because starting around the 1920s, nails became available. So the thatching was applied with nails. And before that, it was kind of tied and lashed together. It's a tricky question. I'm going to maintain that they've always been a part of seminal culture. Because the chickies were thrown up quickly and left to fall when they're done, they are harder to track through the years. To complicate the story further, Seminoles face a problem most native groups face in the country. They weren't permitted to tell their own story. Unfortunately, Seminole history was written by non-Seminoles, right? Like most native cultures, tradition and history is passed down through oral traditions, or it's passed down orally. So the Seminoles weren't writing down their own would-be history, right? So this was, the story was told by outsiders. It was the very European, the Eurocentric, the colonial narrative, as we kind of call it now. So during the Seminole War era, people who were taking notes or, you know, making these records of the Seminoles, that's, that's kind of the first evidence that we see in the written narrative of Chickies. And, you know, some of them were drawing sketches and things like that. I think that it was kind of tied to that era because the the colonial narrative says, oh, there must be a clear and distinct origin, although there's not. You know, they want to say, oh, well, the first time this, you know, person in the war thought, so they must have originated then. So Americans who were fighting in the Seminole Wars would see a chicky and note that as the quote-unquote first, that the origin of the chicky was happening before his eyes. Just because that was the narrative proposed in the American version of the chicky's history doesn't make it true. Reconstructing that narrative requires a lot of research and some recontextualization. While the more distant history is being reclaimed and the origins of the chicky are clearer now, its modern history is where a lot of Carrie's work comes into play in the 20th century. Just to remind the listeners, like Seminoles were living in mass in chickies until recently, right? Until the 1950s on some reservations and until the 1970s on other reservations. And some Seminoles still live in chickies today particularly, you know, not on not on the reservations and maybe the independent Seminoles. This is current. And in the 1950s, there were lots of groups, um, particularly in Dania or Hollywood, who saw chickies as an unfit type of housing. So there were these organizations that um, really pushed Seminoles to move into like these quote-unquote modern houses. So concrete block structures or even wooden frame houses so I would say, like, as that was gaining momentum, and there were a lot of conflicting feelings within the tribe itself, because a lot of the elders in particular didn't want to move into these houses. You know, they're very confined. They were the opposite of a chicky. Carrie notes here that you can't draw an exact parallel between a chicky and a house, so to speak. Chickies are an incredibly diverse structure, and in one spot, they can serve multiple different purposes. 
So there would be sleeping chickies and cooking chickies and dining chickies. When Seminoles were moving into a single-family home, there's a lot of breakdown of, of culture that happened at that point because within the camps, it wasn't just one nuclear family. It was an extended family. And the Seminoles are a matrilineal society, so everything is passed through the mother's line. And so when a couple marries, the husband comes to live with his wife in her family's camp. And that's where the children are raised. So, you know, these camps could have several different families located and there would be different chickies, as I said, for different purposes. These single family homes were just such a dramatic departure. And, you know, it was really a push towards the nuclear family structure, which was not traditionally seminal. As this was happening, the chickies were kind of being looked down upon outside of outside of the tribe. During that time, interestingly, though, you start to see a rise of commercial chicky builders. There was this desire for this uh, tropical thatch roof structure outside of the reservation. So a lot of a lot of Seminoles began to build chickies commercially at people's homes and at other locations throughout South Florida. There were people in the communities who never lost sight of the importance of chickies. They were always a part of ceremonial culture. They never, ever went out of favor completely. And, you know, I don't think there could have been a time when you wouldn't have, when you would have gone on the reservation and not seen them. And then there was a boom again in the 1990s. And, you know, I think that was kind of why I saw so many during my survey, which I started in 2008, really like the resurgence of that. And the, the political leaning for the Seminole tribe at that time was really like, okay, let's really stress the importance of chickies. And I think there were incentives for chicky builders on the reservation. So, you know, you just saw a surge. And I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but when I conducted the survey, I found 479 chickies just on the Big Cypress Reservation. Wow. And I think that was it averaged out to be like one per house or something like that. And there isn't a huge population out there. So they're very prevalent. Nearing the end of the 20th century, as part of a massive push by the tribe, chickies become more and more prevalent again, to the point that when Carrie started putting together her architectural survey just a few decades later, the result was that there was a ton of chickies across the Big Cypress Reservation. They kind of shifted from primary residences to to secondary residences and with the exception of the cooked chickie so i heard from various chickie builders when i was conducting interviews is that culture dictates that there should be there should always be a cooking chickie in the camp so you're always supposed to have that and the cooking chickie is where everybody came together around the fire that's where the women they were cooking the meals and the men were hunting and bringing back food to be prepared there, but that was really the central part of the culture. And, you know, I think that's universal. I think food food is the heart of, of most cultures, you know, if not everyone. As for the survey itself, it took a lot of work from Carrie to gather all the information. She was out meeting with the residents of the Big Cypress Reservation and collecting all she could about the presence of chickies. She did what she calls a pedestrian survey, meaning she was observing structures from afar and collecting information that way. She says that if she could do the survey all over, she would have wanted to engage with the community on a more person-to-person level. Nevertheless, she learned so much from what she gathered. 
Carrie was looking at it from her background in architectural history rather than an anthropological perspective, meaning it was more focused on the history of how structures develop rather than human usage. In her research, because times have changed, the way that chickies are being crafted, the way that they are being used, has changed as well. Chickies traditionally were made from cypress trees. With the availability of cypress, maybe that's dwindled a little bit, or thinking about these huge cypress trees. And some chicky builders managed to find like these really, really large trees to make use of for the upright posts, for the structural system. And, you know, one of the modern conveniences that I, I noticed time and again was the use of pressure-treated pine for the structure of the chicky versus the cypress. So that was one of the big changes. There were some really interesting structures that I came across, including doghouse chickies, and, you know, a lot of them were enclosed, which some chickies were traditionally enclosed anyway. But you know, I saw like a concrete block home with a chicky roof and the former chairman, James Billy, his house, I really thought was, you know, the modern adaptation of, of chicky living. And so I touch upon that in the book and, you know, propose that that could be the future of, of chicky building. So it's kind of a hybrid of what you would think of as a modern home and a chicky. So it's really cool. The whole idea of what a chicky can be is being adapted, while still embracing the traditional designs used by seminal ancestors for thousands and thousands of years. Seeing the ways that the structure can change, the way that they can have different usage, is why it is so essential. Take a look at the seal of the Seminole tribe of Florida. There is a large chicky right in the middle, the most prominent symbol in the image. The chicky is very, very important. The Chicky doesn't just tell us about things from the past. The way that the Chicky is changing can tell us a lot about how things are and how things are going. Carrie brings up that in the last year, Atatiki has been receiving a lot of messages from people who want to be more aware of issues facing native groups in Florida. She's candid in how important that is, but also candid in how important the story of modern Chickies are in relation to that idea. We've had a, a large number of people reaching out to us, and I think there's this awakening. I, I want to hope that it's widespread, where people are more concerned about these these issues. I think that it's really critical that what we're engendering in people is, or we're like kind of planting that seed. So if someone reaches out to us and they're like, oh, I want to write a land acknowledgement, and you know, that's the first step in the process. So really, it's it, driving people to take an action so it's not just like checking a box like oh well i should be doing a land acknowledgement so i did my land acknowledgement and that's the end of it a land acknowledgement is essentially when an institution or town or group acknowledges that the land they are on is the historic land of native groups in florida including seminal ancestors there's a link below to an article in the seminal tribune that you should check out that's all about the various groups participating in this gesture of land acknowledgement Carrie hopes that this is just the beginning of people educating themselves on the Seminoles and their ancestors. Before we got on microphone, I confessed to Carrie that I wanted to make an episode about the Seminole people connected to something fascinating and not something particularly upsetting about the Seminole history, such as the wars and the disease that surround their ancestors and their history, but Carrie is very candid with me. You didn't want to break into the Seminole story by focusing on this negative history. Well, there's a lot of negative stuff happening still to this day. 
And I think it's really important for people to be aware of that. And, you know, within the Seminole tribe and, you know, just thinking about the Everglades, for example, there's still a, a war waged against the Seminole tribe within the Everglades. The Everglades are in the process of being restored after decades of climate change affecting the water, animals, and flora of the ecosystem. Restoring the Everglades while considering seminal input into that project is an ongoing conversation, one we will certainly see more of in the years to come. On top of that, in the last several months, a new bid for oil drilling in the Everglades has led to protests, including outcry from members of the Seminole Tribe and the Miccosukee Tribe. Even Agricultural Commissioner Nikki Freed has weighed in on the issue. I've included a story about that, again, from the Seminole Tribune that you should read. The Chickies are, indeed, an amazing story and a great way to start exploring seminal history on this show in a way I wish I had earlier. But Carrie says that Chickies are also a great way to understand the problems still facing the Seminole tribe to this day. The Chickie builders may be incorporating pressure-treated pine today because they can't get these large cypress trees. Well, part of that is thinking about the change that has happened in the Everglades. So, you know, I think over the course of the past year, this awareness that the, that this country is facing, they're taking a look, wow, like things are still happening and what can I potentially do to, to make a difference in, in these causes? And I think being aware that Seminoles and other uh, tribes are still fighting, we're starting to put together resources where people can really become more educated, but we're trying to break down that colonial narrative or break down the fact that a lot of people think that Seminole history, you know, is all that they need to know about the Seminole tribe, and, and that's not really the case. So, you know, I think there's just, again, planting that seed and building, forging relationships with organizations and individuals to help raise that awareness and elevate those Seminole voices. The narrative of the Chickie in the past was diluted by American soldiers who misrepresented their origins. And the narrative of the Chickie today is being diluted by the problems of climate change actively impacting Florida and the Everglades. The Chickie is an extremely versatile structure, one that can serve countless purposes for those that construct them. But the story of the Chickie is as versatile as the structure itself, as essential to understanding the problems of yesterday and today and the work that we all need to do. The Chicky, it seems, is the perfect place to start. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or somehow this is your first episode, welcome. This is the part of the credits where I normally recommend another episode of this show for you to check out, but realistically, you should be reading more from Atatiki and from the Seminole Tribe, so I have provided plenty of resources in the description of this episode that you need to go and read and check out and get yourself more educated on the things that are happening in the Seminole Tribe and in all of the tribes of Florida. So go check out those links. I appreciate you doing so. In the same vein, I would like to thank Dave Scheidecker and Carrie Daly. This was a unique episode in that it was all about these guests, all about the information that they could provide. I am so grateful for their assistance and presence. They have done so much to bring this episode to life. So I have to give a massive, massive thank you 
to them. If you want to follow this show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can do so at WFMPod. You can send me a message at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out more of their fabulous music at the link in the description. Next week, we are approaching the finale of season six. That will be part one of our two-part finale all about the history of the Conk Republic. It is a wild and fascinating story. It's going to be a two-parter next Monday and the Monday following, and that will be the finale of this season. You are going to love these episodes. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next Monday. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Go get your vaccination as soon as you are able. I actually am getting my shot on the day of this episode's release. And of course, drink more water. Have a good week. Take care of yourself.